verses 1 and 2 of Gen- or pardon me, Exodus chapter 3, verses 1 and 2 of Exodus chapter 3 are summative. They basically tell you the whole story in a nutshell, and then Moses goes back beginning at verse 3 and unfolds it in more detail, more specificity. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. That's what happens in the next chapter and a half. Then, in verse 3, we read a more detailed unfolding of the events. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. Obviously that happened before the Lord spoke to him from the bush. So you can see that we're kind of now going back a few minutes in the narrative. So verses 1 and 2 are simply summative. Moses was pasturing his flock. He saw a bush that was burning, but it was not consumed. And when he went near to check it out, the angel of the Lord spoke to him from within the bush. And then we zoom in and the scene unfolds before us. That's what happens in Exodus chapter 3 and the first half of Exodus chapter 4. The events themselves are not hard to understand. The dialogue is reasonably straightforward. What Moses says is intelligible. What the Lord says is also relatively intelligible. There's some mystery surrounding his name. I am who I am. But even so, we can accept it at face value. This is the way that the Lord chose to reveal himself to Moses. So this is not really a very difficult passage to understand in terms of just what transpires, what happens. But what is the significance of what happens here in this passage? Well, we learn about Moses' character and we learn about God. What do we learn about Moses' character? We know from Acts 7 that Moses was a man mighty in word and deed. But that has more to do with his abilities and even with his genetics, most likely, as a big, well-built man, than his character. To be a man mighty in word and deed is a descriptor of someone, but it really doesn't tell you anything about their character, actually, does it? You could be an evil man, mighty in word and deed. You could be a good man, mighty in word and deed. You could be mighty in word and deed in the business world. You could be mighty in word and deed in the world of athletics and sports and have a great career as an athlete and then become a coach and be remembered as a man, mighty in word and deed. It actually doesn't really tell you much about his character. It simply tells you about his ability. And as we pointed out, uh, I think it was last week or the week before, his genetics that he killed an Egyptian, buried him in the sand, it seems probably relatively easily, and then he chases away a bunch of shepherds from the well so that the women can water their flocks. And normally, a multiplicity of shepherds would probably overpower a single wanderer. But it seems that Moses was likely a big 
strong, strapping, imposing man. And thus, Stephen says in Acts chapter 7, he was a man mighty in word and deed. So what was Moses' character like, at least at this stage of his life? Well, we see in this passage that he was rightly afraid, rightly afraid when he met God. Chapter 3 and verse 6, Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. This is the right response, and this is the natural response to meeting God. God is not someone to be trifled with, and anybody who trifles with Him simply doesn't know Him very well. God is not a God to be taken lightly, and anyone who does take Him lightly simply doesn't know Him very well. When people in the Scripture meet God, they're very often afraid. We think of Isaiah's vision where he sees the Lord high and lifted up. And what does he say? Oh, hello there. No. Woe is me. The prophet of God. Woe is me. We read that at the return of Christ, impudent, rebellious men who have spent their lives mocking and scoffing, resisting God, committing treason against God throughout their lives, will see Christ coming and they will look on Him whom they have pierced and they will call on the mountains to fall on them. So where is all your bravado now, unbeliever? You see, throughout the scripture, when people meet God, the natural response and the right response is fear. So Moses was rightly afraid when he met God here in this passage. He meets a God who reveals himself to be, I am who I am. I am who I am. I've been studying the nature, the essence of God as a point of personal interest and ministerial responsibility trying to work through some complex issues. And I'm reading theological texts expounding this portion of Scripture or that portion of Scripture and working through the implications, trying to help the reader understand who God is. And I keep searching for a metaphor. Well, what? If God is like that, then what's a metaphor that I could use to wrap my head around that? And I had this profound moment one day when I was sitting there in my chair with a head-tying piece of theological work open in my lap. And I said, there is no metaphor. He just is who He is. That just came out of my mouth. And then I realized that's exactly what God told Moses in Exodus chapter 3. I am who I am. You see, there is no metaphor for God. There is no comparable for God. 
There is no one like him. In fact, he says as much. There is no one like me. God exists without peers. God exists without comparables. So God doesn't say to Moses, go and tell them, I'm like the Egyptian sun god, Ra, except yours, the Israelites. He doesn't say, I'm like this deity or that deity, except a little better or a little bigger, or I don't have allegiance to those people, I have allegiance to you, my people. He doesn't, the Lord doesn't bring any comparisons when Moses says, who are you? Who shall I tell them sent me? God says, I am who I am. God exists without peers, without comparables. And God reveals himself here to Moses by way of visually, by way of a burning bush. And of course we know, I'm not a scientist, but I know enough to know that fire needs some kind of fuel to sustain it. Now, on the one hand, maybe the Lord was just trying to do some kind of novelty to make Moses walk up and check out the bush. But I think that that would be a rather superficial and misguided way of reading it, because the Lord could have just appeared right in front of Moses. He didn't have to do a trick to get his attention. He could have just simply sent an angel to appear right before Moses as Moses was walking and say, hey Moses. And in fact, in Genesis, we see things like that happening where the Lord just appears. So, I have to think there's some meaning to the visual representation that the Lord gave of Himself to Moses when He appeared to him out of this bush. And I think that the meaning is as simple as this. The fire wasn't drawing on the bush any fuel. And so God exists without being dependent on His creation in any way. The theological term for that is aseity. God exists in aseity. He is not dependent upon anything or anyone. He's not contingent upon anything or anyone. He simply is who He is and He exists in and of Himself without drawing any fuel from outside of himself. What sort of being is this? Who has no peers or comparables? What sort of being is this? Who depends on nothing outside of himself? What else or who else is like him? You depend on many things outside of yourself. All of the pagan deities depend on something outside of themselves. In fact, in some systems, it's so, they're so creaturely, they even have to feed them. But God is a fire which burns without fuel. There is no peer, there is no comparable, I am who I am. And so Moses was rightly afraid when he met this God. But Moses was wrongly afraid even after God said, this God said he would be with him. Look at Exodus 3 and verse 12. 
Well, look at verse 11, actually. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? God doesn't answer the question, Who am I? He, he just changes the subject. No, Moses. Not who are you, but who am I? Moses says, Who am I that I should go? And God says, No, no, no. I will be with you. Never mind who you are. I will be with you. I am who I am will be with you. The God who is a fire which burns without fuel will be with you. The God who has no peers and no comparables will be with you. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob will be with you. Throughout the rest of chapter 3 and into chapter 4, Moses is still making excuses until he gets to the root of the matter. In chapter 4 and verse 13, the Lord deals with his excuses one by one until finally Moses just says it baldly, Oh my Lord, please send someone else. Really, that's at the bottom of it. He just doesn't want to go. Please says. So Moses was rightly afraid when he met God. He was wrongly afraid even after God promised his presence to him as he goes. And then Moses was sinful in that at the end of the day he understood what God was asking. He raised his questions and objections, clarified his mission, clarified step by step how he's to accomplish it. And at the end he's like, no, please send someone else. So he was rightly afraid when he met God. He was wrongly afraid even after God said he would be with him. And he was sinful. But lastly, Moses was trusting. Look at chapter 4 and verse 3. And God said, throw it on the ground. So Moses threw it on the ground. And it became a serpent. And Moses ran from it. But the Lord said to Moses, put out your hand and catch it by the tail. Now, I don't know if any of y'all used to catch snakes when you were growing up, but I did. And a surefire way to get bit by snakes is to pick them up by the tail. Because all they do is whip around and bite you. So when you go to catch snakes, you try to catch them right behind the head. And then you pick them up and they might wrap their tail around your arm, but they can't do anything to you. And then you can hold them there. That's how you do it. When you see the huge ones, I've never caught like cobras and big pythons and stuff like that. But when you watch the videos on YouTube, what do they do? They take a Y-shaped stick and they put it right behind the snake's head. Right? Because then it can do whatever it wants with its body. But if its head can't move, it can't come around and bite you. So Moses says, I used to catch snakes like maybe like this long. Little, little non, non-poisonous, non-venomous ones. But I'm thinking, if Moses had a staff and he threw it on the ground, it was probably at least as long as his staff. Probably at least as thick as his staff, which wasn't a twig. And the Lord says, take it by the tail. Now the Lord knows how to catch snakes. Right? So you see, this is almost an implicit request for trust. Go catch it by the tail, Moses. And what does Moses do? So he put out his hand and caught it. Not much argument, not much debate, not much hesitation. He just did it. 
verse 6 and 7. Again, the Lord said to him, put your hand inside your cloak. Now, if the Lord had just told him, throw down your staff, and Moses, of course, didn't know what to expect when he threw down his staff, but then the thing became a snake. (laughs) And so finally, that thing turned back into a staff, and Moses must have been relieved. But now the Lord says, put your hand inside your cloak. He was probably like, oh man, what's going to happen now? And sure enough, he puts his hand inside his cloak and out it comes leprous. You see, these are scary things that are happening here. But you see Moses going with it. Right? And doing what the Lord is asking of him here. You see some trust. And finally, at the end of the day, after he says, oh, please send someone else. The Lord's like, no, I'm going to send Aaron with you, but you're still going to go. Verse 18 says, Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, please let me go back to my brothers in Egypt. So he went. So, Moses was rightly afraid when he met God. He was wrongly afraid even after God said he would be with him. He was sinful, but he was also trusting. In other words, Moses is presented to us here as being very relatable to us. Rightly afraid of God, wrongly afraid even after God says He will be with Moses, sinful and yet trusting. This is a very similar character to some people that we know very well. Aren't we often much the same way? What we learn about God in this passage. We learn that God is, as He says of Himself in Exodus 3 and verse 8, God is a God who has come down. And I have come down, God says. You see, the Lord meets people like Moses, where Moses is and where we are. We see again anthropopathic language. I introduced that concept to you last week. It's a big word, but it simply means basically predicating of God human-like emotional responses or human-like affections and that sort of thing. At the end of chapter 2, it says that God heard their groaning. Well, does the Lord have ears? No, of course not. And God remembered His covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Well, does the Lord forget? No, never. These are ways of speaking about God. The God who knows all things. The God to whom all things are open. We predicate of Him that He hears, that He remembers, that He sees, that He knows. And again, here in this passage before us. Look at verse 3. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush. Again, isn't that anthropopathic language? Was God really waiting to see what Moses would do? He wasn't sure what was going to happen, but here's God just watching the events unfold, trying to get Moses' attention hoping that he notices the way that we hope that our spouse notices as they're leaving the driveway and we're trying to flag them down because we forgot our cell phone in their car. Is Moses 
Is God here in a burning bush hoping Moses turns aside to see? No, of course not. We're predicating a human-like relation to Moses and to the unfolding events. Look at chapter 4, verse 8. If they will not believe you, God said, or listen to the first sign, they may believe the latter sign. Again, anthropopathic language. Look, God condescends to speak to us in terms that we can understand, to speak of His relationship to us in terms that we can understand. That God hears us. That God sees us. God comes down to wrestle with our objections alongside us. Moses is like, well, what if they don't believe me? And the Lord's like, well, try this sign. And if this sign doesn't work, try this sign. They might believe it. Isn't that the way that two humans would speak to each other? And talk about persuading an unbelieving group? God condescends, He comes down to us even in the way that He speaks to us. Even in the way He reveals Himself to us. The Lord comes down to answer Moses' questions. Again, wouldn't it be right for the Lord just to say, Moses, stop talking back to me, just go. Would there be anything wrong or inappropriate with that? No. The Lord nevertheless takes on Moses' questions. And he allows Moses to dialogue with him. But what's your name? What shall I say to them? He answers. And what if they don't believe me? Well, then do these signs. You know what? I can't speak. Well, I made your mouth. Don't worry about it. God comes down. This is how God has been presented to us in Scripture. As being a God who comes down. As the Lord reveals Himself here to Moses as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Let's just rehearse briefly God's dealings with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I read them at length last week. I won't do the same this week. But Genesis 12 and verse 1, the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you and I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Well, what did Abram do to deserve that? What kind of guy must Abram have been that Yahweh would look at him and take note and enter into such a benevolent relationship to him? Joshua 24 tells us, verse 2, And Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates. Terah, the father of Abraham and of Nahor, and they served other gods. Then I took your father Abram, Abraham from beyond the river and led him through all the land of Canaan. And so on and so on. You see, in that instance, God came down. God came down to Abram. Abram didn't go up to God. God came down. And so it is with Isaac. And so it is with Jacob. 
all of those passages where God reveals Himself to them and makes promises to them. He's always condescending to them. He's always coming down to them to meet them at their level. In fact, when I was preaching on Jacob's dream in which he sees a ladder stretching up to heaven, you will remember that I told you about how many people think that it should be translated not that the Lord stood at the top of the ladder but that the Lord stood beside him in other words Jacob saw the ladder stretching between heaven and earth and I think exegetic pardon me not exegetically um, grammatically it can go either way apparently The Lord could be on top of the ladder or beside him. But I think theologically, and you can go back and listen to that sermon for the reasons, but I think theologically, I believe, it necessitates that the Lord stood beside him. God came down the ladder to appear beside him, to speak to him his gracious promises. In any case, whether that's true of the dream or not, certainly it's it's true theologically that Jacob didn't ascend to God, but God descended to be in relationship with Jacob. God is a God who comes down. This is the way he's been presented to us thus far in the biblical narrative. God is the God who deals with sinners. Abram, while he serves other gods. Isaac, who plays favorites with his kids and is a little bit too passive. Jacob, who's a liar and a uh, schemer. God comes down. This is how we've seen Him in Genesis. This is how we're seeing Him here again in Exodus. God is a God who comes down. In Exodus 3 and verse 8 where He says, I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians. It's actually just, it's not the first coming down of God. It's another coming down in a long line of many comings down. God is a God who has a pattern of coming down. And God is a God who comes down to bring His people up. Look at verse 8 of Exodus chapter 3. I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up. I have come down to bring them up, God says. And again, this bringing up is not the first time that God has come down to bring up. This is one more instance in a long line of many bringings up. Here, it's out of slavery to the Egyptians. But thus far, it's been out of a pagan family and out of a pagan land to follow God into a promised land to have an inheritance and to become a new nation it's been up out of the hand of pagan kings who are hostile towards his people it's been up out of the hand of a murderous brother Esau who wanted to kill it's been up out of out from the grasp of a deceitful uncle Laban who also had harmful intent. It's been up out of all these situations. It's also been up into relationship with Him. 
God, throughout Genesis, has been coming down to bring His people up, not only out of bad temporal situations, but up into relationship with Him. And He's about to do the same thing here in Exodus. This is not going to be merely a deliverance from temporal factors, this slavery in Egypt, but this is also going to be a bringing up into relationship with Him. About midway through Exodus... God is going to enter into covenant with the people of Israel, constituting them a nation, giving them laws and rules and guidelines about how they are to relate to Him. He's going to bring them up out of Egypt and not just abandon them, but draw them near to Himself. So this phrase here, I'm going to bring, I I have come down to bring them up in this case, refers to bringing them up out of slavery in Egypt. But really, it's the same pattern at play that has been at play since the beginning of Genesis. God comes down to bring His people up. Exodus is going to develop this theme that God comes down to bring His people up. It's going to show us how God comes down and brings His people up out of slavery. It's also going to show us how God comes down to bring His people up into relationship with Him. And this sending of Moses is obviously a really key part of God's plan and God's means for doing that. This is the purpose for which Moses is sent into Egypt. To bring God's people up. As Exodus develops this theme of God coming down to bring His people up, it's going to heighten narrative tension with respect to the relationship of people like Moses to God. You remember at the beginning, we looked at what can we learn about Moses from this passage, and we saw that he was rightly afraid of God. Wrongly afraid, even though God had promised that he would be with him. We saw that Moses was sinful, sinfully resistant to what God wanted him to do. But we saw also that Moses was trusting. In saying those things about Moses and seeing those things about Moses in this passage, we see that he's very much like us. He's also very much like all the people of Israel who are going to come up out of the land of Egypt. God is going to bring up sinners out of the land of Egypt. He's going to call them to trust Him, but they're going to struggle with that. As He calls us to trust Him, and we struggle with that. Exodus is going to heighten a narrative tension with respect to how can people like that be in a relationship with a God like this? That question is going to be developed throughout Exodus. And the tension is going to be raised as we go. We see here a couple of things. God says in Exodus chapter 3 and verse 5 to Moses, Do not come near. I didn't go and reread the whole book of Genesis. 
But we just finished preaching through it, and I've therefore studied it pretty carefully over the last couple of years. I can't think of a parallel phrase. I can't think of an instance yet in the unfolding biblical story where God says to his own people, do not come near. Can you? I think what's happening here is that we're seeing a development in progressive revelation where God has been really showing lavish grace, condescending to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in very anthropopathic, anthropomorphic ways, dealing very, very graciously with them in spite of sins that we would not tolerate in the church in our day and age. I think what's happening here is that God is adding another aspect to his relationship with his people, at least more explicitly than he has before, which is that there has to be some distance between me and sinners. Imagine if you adopted a child that was a little bit older, let's say 10 years old or 12 years old, not a baby, is the first thing that you would do The first thing, be a disciplinarian. They come into your house and they have bad table manners and you scold them. You discipline them and you send them to their room. Probably not. What you would most likely do in terms of your progressive development of that relationship would be to start with grace, with mercy, with love, to help that child feel safe and secure in your family, but eventually you would begin to say, hey, listen, that behavior is not okay. That behavior is not okay. And you would bring that aspect into the relationship. It seems that the Lord is going to begin developing that aspect much more explicitly in the book of Exodus than he had in the book of Genesis. It was there, of course. I mean, there was even the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. Clearly, we see in Genesis a holy God. But in terms of the way that he related to his people, have you ever seen anything like, do not come near? Probably not since the garden where God said, get out. From there on, it's come closer. Trust me. God walking with people, God appearing to people, God standing beside people. But now God's saying, do not come near. God says, take off your shoes. For the place on which you are standing is holy ground. Take your sandals off your feet. Now we know that dirt, physical dirt is not sin. And so this is symbolic. Because it's not like physical dirt can't be in the Lord's presence. But we all understand the symbolism of dirty shoes. Take them off, leave them at the door. Don't walk on that clean floor with those muddy shoes. We all understand that. Here God is really impressing upon Moses. You can't just approach me willy-nilly. You can't just approach me however you want. There's some rules to it. 
take off your muddy shoes for one. And second, keep your distance. Later in Exodus, God is going to multiply the rules for approaching Him. And we're going to see a revelation of God's holiness. Of the stringent requirements for approaching Him that are unprecedented in the scriptural record thus far. Here in this passage, God is beginning to form Moses' conception of who he is, setting the scene for later revelation. Not only take off your shoes, but wear the right kinds of clothes. Bring the right kind of sacrifice. Don't do, don't do this thing, don't do that thing. Here's the kind of food you can eat, here's the kind of food you can't eat. This is what you've got to do if you want to be my people. And in fact, no one can come into the Holy of Holies except the high priest. And him only with special clothes and the right sacrifice and so on and so forth once a year. So keep your distance and tell everybody else to keep their distance. Don't let anyone else come up the mountain. Only you. You see, this is going to be developed in Exodus in a way that it wasn't in Genesis. Not saying that God changed, but that in the progress of Revelation, God is really adding in, in terms of emphasis and clarity, this aspect of His holiness, His transcendence, His unapproachability in Exodus in a way that He hasn't yet in Genesis. And so here we see just a couple of things setting the tone for that as he deals with Moses. Take off your shoes and don't come any closer. These commands paired with God's statement that I have come down to bring my people up show us that these rules are not intended to Communicate God's unwillingness to help us, God's unwillingness to be with us, but rather the terms on which God is willing to help us, the terms on which God is willing to be with us. We see here in God's statement, I have come down to bring them up, God's willingness. But we see in take off your shoes and don't come closer that there are terms and conditions of relating to this God. Throughout Exodus and throughout the rest of the Old Testament, the narrative tension is heightened further. How can people like Moses, how can people like the Israelites be in relationship to God? How can people like us be in relationship to God? There are rules here There are more rules later in Exodus. But what we find is that even those later rules in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy don't actually resolve the issue, do they? As Hebrews says, otherwise the sacrifices would cease to be offered. But the very fact that they continue and have to be offered over and over again is that there's no permanent solution here in these rules. 
How can people like Moses, people like the Israelites, people like us be in relationship with a God like this, who has no peer, no comparables, who's like a fire that needs no fuel? How can we be in a relationship with a God like that? Not by the blood of bulls and goats. Not by someone like Moses, who even himself has to keep his distance from God. Not by a priest who's allowed in one day a year, but not the other 364. We need a substitute whose blood actually deals with sin. We need one who has access to God all day, every day. Whoever lives to make intercession for us. We need one who doesn't have to stay away from God because of his own sin, but can go right in there. We need one who doesn't have to take off his shoes because there's no dirt, no mud on those shoes. And this is actually what Christmas is about, isn't it? God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law. The narrative tension will be heightened throughout the book of Exodus and throughout the whole Old Testament. How can people like that dwell with a God like this? We need one who's allowed to get close to God, who has no sin, to keep him at arm's length. And we need one with no dirt on his shoes. And Jesus is that one. Jesus is one to whom God will never say, do not come near. Not only as the second person of the Godhead, but also as the sinless mediator, go between, between God and man. As the sinless man, Jesus is welcome to approach God. And He is our priest. He speaks to God on our behalf. And He doesn't need to take off His shoes. God never says, take off your shoes for the place you're standing is holy ground. Because Jesus has no dirt on His shoes, so to speak. Jesus was born to be the sinless Holy Savior of mankind who would resolve this tension of how can people like Moses dwell with a God who appeared in the burning bush. That tension's introduced to us here in this passage. It's developed further in Exodus and throughout the rest of the Old Testament. It's resolved ultimately in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus is worthy to approach God and we become worthy in Him. And so we are able with confidence then, boldness to draw near to the throne of grace, to find mercy and grace to help in a time of need because of Him. In Christ Jesus, it's as if God speaks to us from the burning bush and says, come near. Leave your shoes on. Come near. This is what the work of Christ does 
for us. So let us worship the triune God who repeatedly in Scripture comes down to bring His people up. Ultimately into relationship with Him, whatever other temporal circumstances He brings us up out of. Let us worship the triune God who repeatedly comes down to bring His people up. Ultimately into relationship with Him. In spite of our sinfulness and His holiness. And who does so ultimately through Christ Jesus.